Welcome along to another journey on the London Vlogger podcast with me, Stu, where I take you on some of London's most famous and lesser known walking routes to discover the capital's history and sights. If you'd like to read all my walks, they're available at www.londonvlogger.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts or SoundCloud. My journey in today's show begins at the busy terminus of London Waterloo Station before heading to the South Bank and Waterloo Bridge. I'll then pass by the Hungerford Bridge and Golden Jubilee Bridges and conclude at an iconic modern landmark, the London Eye. Also, stay tuned for my fascinating facts feature, which explores the contrasting history of two of the millennium's landmarks. Starting at one of the gateways to London, Waterloo Station is Britain's busiest train station, with over 95 million people using it every year, with a staggering 24 platforms. But you might be wondering why Clapham Junction has claimed to be the busiest train station in Britain in the past. Well, that's true. This is measured by how many trains pass through it. But for the sheer volume of passengers, Waterloo takes the honour. Waterloo Station was opened in 1848 by London Southwestern Railway as an extension of the main line from Nine Elms Railway Station, which in the 1830s was a London terminus. Back in the 1850s, to deal with the overcrowding problems of London cemeteries, bodies were transported to a purpose-built cemetery in Brookwood, Surrey, from Waterloo. This gave it the name the Death Line. In 1878 and 1885, new platforms were built in the north and south of the station respectively. The terminus was rebuilt between 1900 and 1922, with it officially reopening in March 1922. It took nearly 100 years for the roof to be refurbished, happening between 2001 and 2003. Until it was moved to St Pancras in 2007, the Eurostar service ran from Waterloo Station, which began in 1994. Interestingly, French passengers weren't happy about arriving in London to a station which reminded them of the French's defeat at the Battle of Waterloo. Incredibly, one French politician went so far as to write a letter to the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, to demand it changed its name, but to no avail. The terminus today covers an area of 24.5 acres, with the roof measuring 20 feet by 540 feet, with a maximum single span of 118 feet. In addition to the main line, Southwest Trains, the underground station has the Bakerloo, Jubilee, Northern and Waterloo and City tube lines in it. One of the entrances has what is known as the Victory Arch, which is a Grade 2 listed. It was built from Portland Stone between 1907 and 1922 by James Robb Scott. It represents war and peace, with a Britannia figure over the top of it bearing the Torch of Liberty. I'd say I prefer Waterloo to another terminus I featured on this podcast, Victoria, because it has a more open feel to it. And I love that all the platforms in Waterloo are lined up so perfectly, from Platform 1 all the way to Platform 24. It has a nice curved symmetry about it. Heading out of Waterloo, I join the Station Approach Road and cross over York Road. Then taking a stroll down Quiet Way, I end up at Concert Hall Approach and the Royal Festival Hall, which is one of the world's leading performance venues with a capacity of 2,500 seats with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, the Philharmonic Orchestra 
and the orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment being notable residents. From the sound of music, I take a slight detour to the sound of water to my next destination along the south bank, Waterloo Bridge. Until the beginning of the 19th century, Blackfriars was the only bridge between Westminster and London Bridge. John Rennie was the engineering mastermind behind the first stone bridge, which was laid out in 1811. Originally called the Strand Bridge, it was renamed Waterloo Bridge as a lasting legacy of the victory achieved in the Battle of Waterloo and opened in 1817. However, as the years went on, the bridge gradually started to deteriorate and was demolished in 1930s before a newer bridge, and the one we see today, was officially opened in 1942 but wasn't fully completed until 1945. Although Waterloo Bridge is a prime tourist location, I do feel that the design is pretty bland and it's not the most aesthetically pleasing bridge to look at, but its name and history behind it puts it up there as one of the most famous bridges in the capital. After seeing one bridge, it is time to see another two, as I go back on myself and head back in the direction I just came, to the Hungerford Bridge and Golden Jubilee Bridges. Designed by Bard K. Brunel, the first Hungerford Bridge opened in 1845 and was named after the then Hungerford Market. In 1859, the Charing Cross Railway Act authorised the construction of a railway to cross the Thames near Charing Cross Station and the suspension bridge was removed. A new railway bridge was completed in 1864 with a walkway either side. However, the footbridge next to the Hungerford Bridge gained a reputation of being narrow, dilapidated and dangerous. So in the mid-1990s, a decision was made to replace the footbridge with a new structure. To help with the design, a competition was held in 1996 with Lifshutz Davidson Sandal Lads and engineers WSP Group winning it. The structures were completed in 2002 and named Golden Jubilee to honour the 50th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth II's accession to the throne. The Hungerford Bridge and Golden Jubilee Bridges are one of three bridges, along with Fulham Railway Bridge and Barnes Railway Bridge, to combine pedestrian and rail. I think we might sometimes forget that there's a railway in between the Golden Jubilee Bridges as it's quite hidden away. Like with the Millennium Bridge, its design is very modern and shows how far bridge architecture has come down the years, as the suspension element is very prominent. It's time to continue my walk along the Thames and head towards the final destination on this walk, the London Eye. Designed by Mark's Barfield Architects and opening in 2000, it is one of the world's largest observation wheels, standing at 135 metres high. Interestingly, the wheel only had planning permission in its current location for five years, with a plan to move it to a new location. However, due to its popularity, it remained, and has now become one of Britain's most popular paid-for visitor attractions, and a marvellous addition to the London skyline. It takes 30 minutes to go around the London Eye, with a view of 40 kilometres in all directions. There are 32 capsules to represent the 32 London boroughs, with each weighing as much as 1,052,931 pound coins. Although there are 32, for superstitious reasons, they are numbered 1 to 33, with 13 being left out as this is seen as being unlucky. The London Eye can carry 800 people in each rotation, 
which is the same as 11 London red double-decker buses. And don't worry about the pace of the rotation. It goes at a speedy 26 centimetres per second, twice as fast as a sprinting tortoise. The London Eye is also well known for its fireworks display to welcome in the new year. I hope you've enjoyed taking a walk along some of the capital's most recognisable sites and learning more about their history. Before I end the show, it's time for another one of my fascinating facts. And inspired by an iconic landmark to celebrate the millennium, the London Eye, I'm now going to look at another, the Millennium Dome. Although as you'll find out, its history is a little more eventful. When you think of the Millennium, you might also think of the Millennium Dome, or the O2 Arena as it's known as today. Located in Greenwich and opening on New Year's Eve 1999, Richard Rogers was the architect behind the dome. The dome was open to hold the Millennium Experience at the dome, which was open to the public for the whole of 2000 and contained a large number of attractions and exhibits. The interior space was subdivided into 14 zones, with everything from zones about who we are, such as the body and mind, to zones about what we do, including exhibits on work, learning and play. The project was largely reported by the press to have been a failure though. But part of the problem was that the financial predictions were based on an unrealistically high forecast of visit numbers at 12 million. During the 12 months it was open, there was approximately 6.5 million visitors, significantly fewer than the approximately 12 million paying visitors that attended the Festival of Britain back in 1951. Unlike the press, visitor feedback was extremely positive. It was the most popular tourist attraction in 2000, second to the London Eye and third to Alton Towers. The dome was, however, still of interest to the press, the government's difficulties in selling it being the subject of much critical comment. The amount spent on maintaining the closed building was also criticised. Shortly after it closed, it was reported that the dome was costing over £1 million per month to maintain. Following the closure of the dome, some zones were dismantled by the sponsoring organisations, but much of the content was auctioned off. This included a number of artworks specifically commissioned from contemporary British artists. Despite the ongoing debate about the dome's future, the dome opened again during December 2003 for the Winter Wonderland 2003 experience. This event featured a large funfair, ice rink and other attractions. By the late 2000s, a proposal had been made for a high-tech business park to be erected under the tent area, creating an indoor city complete with streets, parks and buildings. Interestingly, the business park was actually the original 1996 proposal for the site on the Palencia, before the plans for the Millennium Dome were proposed. But the dome we know today began life in 2005, when O2 paid £6 million a year to rename it. This announcement included a major redevelopment of the site that retained little beyond the shell of the dome and transformed it into an entertainment district, including an indoor arena, a music club, a cinema, an exhibition space and bars and restaurants. So there you go. Talk about a contrasting nature of the London Eye's history and that of the Millennium Dome. If you have any memories of visiting the Millennium Dome back in 2000 or you want to share any memories of London or stories, get in touch with me at londonvlogger at gmail.com or on social media you can find me at at londonvlogger on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. 
Well, thanks for joining me and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts or SoundCloud. Until next time, stay safe and well and I look forward to you joining me on more walking adventures soon.